0: about how insulting it is to be in a relationship with someone and suddenly realize that that person is not really relating to you, uh, but to a vision of you that they have conjured in their mind. It's insulting, isn't it? I I see a lot of marriages uh, go through very hellish early years for this very reason, because you enter into marriage with all of these sense of, of your own personal history, which you refer to as normal (laughs) and you bring those in and they suddenly get challenged with other ways of doing things I remember when I was in high school I had a friend over for dinner and my mother served corn on the cob and uh, in our house you know we buttered the corn on the cob by using a knife and spreading it across the corn on the cob well as my friend sort of picked up the corn on the cob he took it and set it on top of the stick of butter and began to roll it up and down the butter and I remember thinking to myself you you barbarian Who would ever treat a corn of the cob in that particular way? But see, you bring these things loaded up into your marriage, and suddenly you begin to wonder whether or not you're really sort of relating to me, or are you really just trying to fashion me into your image of your family practices? You get the sense of how insulting it is in this marriage, of why it is that you're trying to change me. Am I not enough? So what comes into this sort of mixture is the second commandment where God comes along and says, I don't want you to make a carved or what you have in some of your translations, a graven image of me. And so as he does, he's following the logic here. Because the first commandment said that I want you to draw your definition of self only from God. Now in the second commandment, I'm going to show you the means by which you are to know what God thinks of you and what he thinks about himself. And it has so much to do with this very strange, complicated relationship we all have to images. And so I want to use that as the lens to sort of unpack this commandment in three ideas, the the Bible and images, God and images, and then the word and images as we unpack the meaning of this command. First of all, I want to look at the Bible as a whole and, and realize before we start what the Bible is and is not condemning here. When you look at that list that came after verse 4 and 5, you might be tempted to think that what God doesn't like is any form of visual representation in the arts at all, right? Uh, you know, and I think the Bible has a distinctive position when it comes to imagery. It's not against making images in general, and here's the reason I know. In just a few chapters after Exodus chapter 20, God begins to give Moses all kinds of direction about how to build this small little worship tent that he calls the tabernacle, which is covered in, you guessed it, imagery. Exodus 25, 18, where to make cherubim of gold. There's a lampstand with little cups that are, quote, shaped like almond blossoms in 2533. God's not condemning any visual imagery of things that are created in nature. What he's saying is don't make those images for a specific purpose, namely to bow down and worship it. That's what we don't like. And of course, you got to realize that the pagan nations that were all around these Jewish people, not the least of which was the Egyptians from whom they had just left, were image loaded cultures. And in their day, people, you know, oftentimes would set up statues to be their gods. (laughs) And in our day, we look at those things and think, I mean, really? Did, the, did ancient people actually think that this slab of stone was the sun god Ra, or whatever it might be? And historians will tell us that that's actually not the case. Rather, what the image was there for was to sort of help these priests, these ancient priests, uh, as one commentator said, quicken uh, the essence in the statue. In other words, what they were used as is they were used as like little sacraments, if you will, to really serving who God was. And of course, God says, I hate this practice. And the reason why is, is because in just a few short chapters in that tabernacle I was just talking about, God is not going to appear in any kind of mediated version. There's gonna be no images. You're gonna get the genuine article. <laughs> The very Shekinah glory of God is going to come down over that tabernacle. And so he looks and says, don't think that you can serve me better by doing it through some sort of image that you fashioned of me. You can't. And what God is saying is, is it offends me when you do so. God is just as offended as you are when you get a sense that someone is relating to you through their own version of themselves. Or that they've created about you. You're caricaturing them when you use an image of them. And of course, God gets us very emotional about this. Look what he says in verse five. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Now, jealousy has kind of got a negative connotation in our day. But I think what God is saying is, is I want our relationship to be a real one. <laughs> you know, to one where, I'm, where I am not some fantasy of your making. I am jealous for what we have together, and I'm going to do everything I can to protect it. That's what the second command is saying. Now look, before we move on to unpack that a little further, I do think it's worth us taking notice of how the Bible understands, well, for lack of a better word, our eyes and our ears, seeing and hearing in the Bible come in very distinctive ways, and it's interesting in terms of this command. Let me give an example. Psalm 11.4 has this line in it. It says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. So the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, sees the function of eyes as tools of scrutiny. When you use your eyes, you make judgments when you do. 2 Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. What are God's eyes doing? They're evaluating. They're judging. They're discerning. One commentator put it this way. God sees and judges the creation to be good in Genesis chapter 131. Eve then sees and evaluates the tree in Genesis 3, 6. Adam and Eve's eyes are what? opened after they eat the fruit, in Genesis 3, 7. He says, with visible things, we assume a stance of criticism, of command and control, but God is not under our control. We don't judge him, he judges us. So eyes, in the Bible's imagery, are tools of judgment, but ears are very different. Ears, on the other hand, hearing in the Bible is usually synonymous with obedience, Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That statement is just as much a command to submit to God's will uh, as it is to take in his words through your ears, God says. And Jesus picks up on this big time when he pronounces the kingdom. Do you remember in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through like 9 or so? Jesus is talking about how the word gets spread like a farmer spreads seed. And it lands on different kinds of soil. And the soil is an imagery, he explains to his disciples lately, of hearing. Which is why he ends that whole thing by saying, beware then how you hear. Right? Paul is going to make it even further in Romans chapter 10 verse 17 when he says, faith comes through hearing. Now look, I'm going into all this to simply make this simple point. God's servants are called to be hearers and less confident watchers, if you will. In other words, we're to live in subjection to him. We're to listen to him. We are not to scrutinize him, or in the Bible's language, to see him. Now look, you're not paying attention. If you don't see that, this is nearly the opposite of the age in which we live. That one article I was reading said is what he calls the age of spectacle, you know every single square inch of our lives is filled with a flickering screen is it not You know we even have them even in the sanctuary and of course we don't believe that the screens are evil in themselves but what we do think is that if we begin to build relationships that are constantly mediated as it were through a screen you just lose something Nothing can compare to what I'm calling the genuine article of the physical presence of another human being in a hug or a pat on the back. Something there, when we lose that, we've lost something essential. And when we apply it to God, we violated the second commandment. One writer said this, he says, we create these technological miracles and we call them tools, but then we adjust our lives in obedience to their requirements. Panting like a Pavlov's dog every time we hear a text notification ding. Who's really in charge here, he says. The second commandment summons us to resist that temptation to fear, trust, serve, and live by the spectacle. To walk faithfully, we must tune our ears to the word of God. Ooh, hold that thought for a second. But the Bible has this view of images as it understands our seeing and our hearing. But secondly, what is God's relationship to images? It's my second point, God and images. Because it says basically this, you are not to make visible the invisible God. That's the command. A carved image or a graven image, as some of your translations say, is a human made image of God. It's something that can be physical, of course, but you know, it can also be mental. It can be an image you have in your head. And God says, I'm absolutely forbidding my people to make an image in your head of what you want me to be versus what I am. Now the question is, why would God say that? What's his problem with that? Well, I think here's the reason. Because any image that we make in our minds and in our hearts of him will always conceal more than it will reveal. That's the nature of the image. It may say something true, but what it leaves out has the risk of hijacking our worship and making us see something that we're not really seeing. Look, dial back to last fall, as I'm sure you all remember, when we were studying in Exodus 32 and 33, the story of the golden calf. Remember in Israel's history, all the terrible things that happened when they decided they would create this image? Well, I tried to make that point then that God's condemnation of them was not because they were worshiping the calf per se, but because they were using the calf as a means to worship Yahweh. In other words, it was the fact that it was a convenient tool for them. And God looks and says, don't do that. Which, by the way, they never learned not to do. Next time you decide to do a little sort of study on your own of the ancient Jewish kings in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, look how often is mentioned in those books the sin of Jeroboam. I'm not kidding. It's like all over the place in those history books. Well, what is the sin of Jeroboam? Well, Jeroboam was one of the sons of King Solomon, who was reigning at the great Jewish Civil War, which divided the kingdom. And what you find out that Jeroboam's great downfall was, you ready for it, golden calf making. And it happened again and again and again in Israel's history. They never got over this. And it's as if God is saying, look, a calf may be able to represent, I don't know, my strength or my power, but, but if, it, if it leaves out my gentleness and my mercy, then it's less than who I am. And therefore, it's a lie. And so therefore, God looks and says, I want you to allow me to be the one who tells you what I am like. And he's offended when we do so, just like you're offended when someone relates to you in a way in which you are not. And so therefore, by way of application... God's people have wrestled with images for the last 2,000 years of church history and our particular theological tradition especially have been very hesitant to put images of the deity inside of our sanctuaries of worship. Can't tell you how many times we were asked in the building of this sanctuary if we were going to have a stained glass window uh, that would have some picture of Jesus in it. And we responded very graciously that we weren't gonna do that. Why? Why? Because we want to avoid the physical representation here so that we can discourage the same process going on in our hearts. Because we don't know. And it's a vigilant thing we've got to do because the process is so very subtle. You know, a number of years ago, uh, Ginger and I were, were at an Easter pageant. And I talked my wife out of leaving the Easter pageant midway through the entire thing. Now, why would I do that? At an Easter pageant, well, because I was so offended by what they had turned the character of Jesus into in the midst of the play, I judged that they made Jesus into just this smarmy kind of milk toast sweetheart who kind of hemmed and hawed and grinned his way all the way to the cross. It just turned my stomach, so I stormed out. Right, <laughs> right. And my wife, very innocently, she does this all the time, looked at me and she was like, "Huh? Well, so how would you have done it differently?" And all of a sudden, I realized the wisdom of the second commandment. Because I feel very certain that my Jesus would have been a whole lot worse than whatever somebody else did. I'm sure I would have posited the jerky Jesus, right, in the midst of my Easter pageant. But I suddenly realized why God was saying, hey, look, 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 look. If you don't mind, could you please allow me to be in charge of my own self-disclosure? I want to guard that. I want to be the one who's responsible for that. Look, because here's the point you relate to people on the basis of your imagination that sees people in various ways. You saw it with your parents. You know, at first, your parents were the, the provider of every need. In your teen years, you began to see them in a different way. They were antagonistic uh, and maybe always trying to, to stop you. But then you got older and got married and had kids. And they suddenly, your parents magically turned into human beings, didn't they? Why? Because your imagination began to be informed with reality. That's what God's encouraging his people to do. How much is my imagination being shaped by the truth? Hey, one small little aside here before we move on. I do know that there are some Christians, and Christians with whom I do not think are worth dividing, who say that since Jesus has come in the flesh in his incarnation 2,000 years ago, that God literally became visible in that context, that therefore we can ignore the second commandment and visual imagery is not forbidden in worship. And I just simply disagree. I do think it was a specific privilege of the apostles to see Jesus in a visible form and therefore write and give us a record of what he did and said but with his passing, I believe we still honor these particular uh, passages. Now look, that's an argument though that we can have at another time and another date. What I want you to take away from this is this, is if this is true, a lot of us are gonna have to change the very way we talk about God. J.I. Packer in his book Knowing God once said, any sentence that begins with, well, I like to think of God as dot, 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 ought never to be trusted. Because only God can say what he is like. And of course, the good news this morning is that he has told us what he's like, which leads me to my last point. I want you to see the Bible in images, God in images. But now, think about the word in images. Because what happens when someone determines that they want to hear from God on his terms? Well, think of it this way. Let's imagine someone who's been in a relationship or a marriage where they feel like they've been talking past each other for years. Conversation after conversation, there's the two of them completely missing each other and never feeling like they're heard. Finally, they reach a breaking point, And they realize that if they don't do something, their relationship's going to end. And they wonder what they can do. Can you just wake up one morning and be like, well, you know what, okay. Today, I'm not gonna view you at all in the way in which I have for all these many years. <laughs> That's impossible. You can't do it. So what do they do? They go to Counseling. Why do they go to counseling? Because those patterns of relating and thinking become so innate and so intuitive that it will only be cured by a voice from the outside. Someone from the outside of this little system that we've created who is above our own little interpretive grids that we've been living with with each other for so long and break us through into reality. Look, here's my point. For Christians, the Bible is the ultimate therapist. It is our counselor. Because there is no way to know this God if we do not know him through his written infallible word. There's no other way of knowing God other than being in subjection to this book. By the way, this is the reason why you get the Bible talking about itself and the way in which it does. Because let's be honest with you, the Bible is so much more than a counselor. The Bible says, I'm not just here to witness to the reality of God. I even come with my own power built in. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It doesn't just talk about spiritual power. It is spiritual power. It's God in active form. There's a favorite story uh, in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel about the prophetic ministry of Samuel. Samuel chapter 3 and in verse 19, it's got a funny little throwaway phrase where it says, And Samuel um, and Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and, quote, Let none of his words fall to the ground. What does that mean? Well, Remember, Samuel is a prophet. He's there to represent God to the people. And it doesn't mean that he never said anything wrong, but that when he took up his special prophetic voice, it had substance. It had power. That Hebrew word for they did not fall to the ground means literally to rot, to fall to pieces. In other words, when Samuel spoke the word of God, it it took up space. It was substantive, which is so different from our words, is it not? You know, Martin Luther once said, the great reformer, the word of a human being is just a little sound that goes out into the air and it's gone. But the word of God is heavier than the heaven and the earth. Indeed, it outweighs the heavens and the earth, and it will outlast them. Ooh, I love that image. God's word is heavy. God's word sort of makes itself known. It it creates impediments in my journey. It sort of builds me up. It creates safety nets where I fall. It creates a sure foundation for me to build my life upon. The word of God is the source of life for the Christian. God's words are not like our words. I heard one minister years ago use an illustration about a farmer who is standing on the edge of his field as he he sees all of his earthly wealth. He sees his farming equipment, he sees his crop, and all of a sudden a storm brews in the distance and a funnel cloud comes right out of the cloud and starts making its way towards his farm. And suddenly the farmer rushes towards the edge and he begins to scream at the funnel cloud, please, please please don't do this thing. And what happens? Nothing. Because his words are not actions. But when God speaks, his words don't fall to the ground. They they take up space, they do things, they change things. Which is why you get places in the Old Testament like Zechariah 1, some friends and I were reading this a couple weeks ago, about how God was judging the returning exiles and how their fathers treated the prophets? Verses five and six, they say this, God says, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? Isn't that a weird word to talk about statutes and commands? That they overtook somebody? But in scripture, you get these hints and pointers that the Bible is so true that it's almost alive. (laughs) This is why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter four will say, for the word of God is living. It's active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to division of soul and joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Look, let me finish with this one thought this morning. I do think a lot of people come to church in search of something, and for some of you, you may have sort of localized that search on, on really wanting to see God. Well, can I just encourage you this morning that make sure that you are not looking for Him in a place where he did not say he would be found? Because where he said he would be found is in your regular and patient investigation of this word. He's not in the impressions you have of him. He is not in that voice inside your head. He's in the words. He's in the verses. He's in the paragraphs. This is where he's found. But you can't come to the Bible and stand in judgment of it and hope that there's going to be a real relationship. You know, skeptics talk this way all the time. They're like, well, you know, I love the Old Testament. I love the New Testament. I can't stand that Old Testament judgmental God. I don't like that. Or, you know, Jesus is kind of cool, but that Paul guy, he really twisted Jesus' message. Or, well, you know, Jesus said some kind of interesting things. But actually, the truth of the matter is, all the stuff he said about him being God and, you know, um, you know, being able to do these miraculous gifts, we certainly don't believe that. Hey, but don't you see what you're doing? You're editing him. If God can't, in his word, say things that blow your mind and confuse you, is he really God? Shouldn't we expect that there are times in which he will absolutely cross our will and make us sort of jolt in response to what he reveals to us and say, I don't understand that? But when he does, does he not become that much more interesting? (laughs) We don't want our faith to be a graven image because God has already made his image. And you know who it is? It's human beings. In Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve are created in his image. God is saying, here is my image, and I want you to go and display my glory throughout the whole earth. But we don't want to do it. We turn away from that. We, what do we do? We sort of uh, we take up and we, we begin to worship the creature rather than the creator. We make images of those things and bow down and worship them. You see now why it's so important that God comes along and says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. That word image is the Greek word icon. Jesus is the icon of the invisible God. He is God's absolute representative of his being. And because you can know him, you can know God without trying to manipulate him. Because no one has known God like Jesus knew God. And no one revealed God like Jesus revealed God. And all I'm saying to you this morning is, is that makes him so much more interesting. Because if you've got a paper God that you've fashioned, how boring. One of my favorite Christopher Nolan movies is the movie Inception. The hero of the movie has learned through science to make his way into people's dreams, other people's dreams, and manipulate them. There's just one problem. As he does so, his own memories inject themselves into these dream experiences. Not the least of which is his deceased wife, who had died years ago by suicide, no less. Well, towards the end of the movie, the main character has to confront his wife's memory because she's beckoning him. She's saying to come and stay here with me in oblivion and in death. And at the biggest moment in the movie, the character has to look at his wife and say, I can't stay with you because you're not real. You, even as much as I hold on to the tender, precious memories that are in my mind and heart, you can't replace the genuine article of all of your flaws and all of your your annoyances and all of your differences from me. And he walks away from her and lets her go So what if God, and what if our failure to sort of take God at his word has made for an incredibly boring relationship with him? And what if there's an adventure embedded not only in the Bible, but in the Jesus that is revealed in the Bible that can allow us to have a relationship with him where we're not here to manipulate him into our image, but that he can surprise us, that he can freak us out that he can blow our minds, that he can nurture even the pain that right now you think will never go away. That's a possibility, isn't it? Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, you have to do this because we look into a little command and it makes no sense. It seems so distant. But now we realize as we look inside of our own hearts that we've got evidences all over the place of our own idolatry of the images that we've made, of how we fashioned you into our image. And so, Father, we repent. As we look at those false images, we we renew our desire to look at your word, to study your word, to read your word, to to maybe even join a small group this fall so that we can sit with other people and and dive into your word. Because, Father, if we don't do that, then we don't have you. So we ask that you would lead us to yourself this morning as as we sing together. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.